0: Welcome back to another episode of The Rage Podcast. My name is Karis Fox and I'm your host for this season. I'm joined today by guests Denise Solis, Lauren Turner, and Katherine Crow of Anderson Academic Commons at the University of Denver. And we are going to be discussing the power of archives as sites of racial confrontation and reconciliation. I'm going to change the format a bit for this episode, so I will be having each of our guests introduce themselves to you. If you would like to read their individual bios, please visit RagePodcast.com and click on this episode. I would like to thank each of our guests for sharing this space with me and teaching me, and I learned a lot. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the episode. So to begin, just to go ahead and get us started, mainly for the purposes so that Our audience will be able to match the voice with the speaker i would like for you all to introduce yourselves including your name your pronouns your position at anderson academic commons and whatever else you'd like for our audience to know about you so denise would you be willing to start us off Sure, thank you, Karis. Um,
1: So my name is Denise Solis. My pronouns are she, her, uh, but I also use ella because I also speak Spanish. Um, I am the interim digital collections librarian, and I'm also a visiting assistant professor. Um, But before then, I was DU's first residency librarian, and residents are kind of like postdocs. I feel like that's the best uh, (laughs) analogy, I guess. Basically, the MLS is the terminal degree for librarians and so a residency is kind of like just a two to three year position, Um, we are actively recruiting more residency librarians right now but um, specifically the program that I am in is a diversity alliance and we are recruiting specifically for racial and ethnic minorities to add um racial and ethnic diversity to libraries because this library like most libraries is 88 white um and yeah i just wanted to add that little tidbit because often i feel like when i talk to a faculty across du it's the library seen as this like Let's have the library do this diversity, equity and inclusion thing, but most of the faculty here are white. Um, So that's just something to that I wanted to point out. Thank you.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren. I'm a graduate student in the Mortgage College of Education getting my Master's of Library and Information Science degree. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and my title at Anderson Academic Commons is the Documenting Student Activism Archives Assistant. Um, I have been doing this since uh, about August of 2021, and, um, I get to work with both digital collection services and special collections and archives to start to kind of develop and assess what the story of student activism has been um, and what it is reflected as in the archives, and then hopefully create some opportunities, um, some more opportunities, I guess I should say, for students to um, document themselves as well as engage with the archival material. Um, that the university has. My name is Kate Crow. I'm the curator of Special Collections and Archives. My
3: pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I've been with the university um, in the library in different capacities for about 15 years. So I have, um, I've been at DU for a while and it has both changed a lot and also not very much, <laughs> which is I think part of what we're gonna talk about um, as we keep going.
0: Thank you all for your introductions. <laughs> I wanted to start off our conversation with a quote from an article that was actually co-authored by Kate, and it's entitled, If you want the history of a white man, you go to the library, critiquing our legacy, addressing our library collections gaps. And it says, as universities confront the racist practices and policies of their pasts, it is primarily their built environments, the named buildings and monuments erected to individuals who were responsible for or participated in acts of violence against or suppression of others that are visible, not the gaps in the university archive. Buildings serve as tangible rallying points for change, but archives are not immediately obvious sites of racial confrontation and reconciliation. Although John Evans' name is pervasive throughout the D.U. campus, our university's legacy of Sand Creek remains buried. Libraries and archives have a history of documenting and containing primarily dominant white American narratives which contribute to the erasure and silencing of Native American voices in the historical record and, in our case, Sand Creek in particular. So jumping right off of the quote, I would like to ask you all, how can archives be used as quote unquote sites of racial confrontation and reconciliation? And then on the other hand, how have archives and libraries historically centered whiteness or acted as evidence of institutional racism?
3: Archives and um, libraries, I think, are as professionally and kind of as organizations. sites the systemic oppression because they don't exist in a, a bubble. They don't exist in the vacuum. They're part of society. An example of that would be in the southeast in um, during specifically Jim Crow, um, libraries were segregated and um, many libraries were not accessible to um, black people. Um, and so that's just one example of how kind of libraries are, um, are not exempt from systems of oppression and often enact them themselves. Archives, I would say, are sort of similarly aligned in the sense that, like, an institutional archives like ours, um, you know, in, in to use the kind of uh, quote that opens the title of um, uh, an article that I wrote about uh, with with some uh, fellow librarians um, about um, kind of whiteness and archives and collections, which is from a woman who was a project um, archivist on an NEA grant on specifically documenting um, the experiences of Black women in the Midwest um, as part of a grant. And she was uh, not an archivist. She was a community member. And um, as part of the grant, she was going out around, like, into the community that she was part of and asking for people to donate materials to institutions Um, and uh, as part of that she um was interviewed and said if you want the history of a white man you go to the library if you want the history of a black woman you go to um attics and basements and and um essentially not to institutions and i usually will quote her and cite her because i feel like it's the most um uh, it's the best summation of the kind of perpetual issue that archives kind of Uh, reenact and continue to reflect back that kind of that history of whatever the institution is and was and that is the history of cisgender heterosexual um able-bodied white men typically and archives also because we are sort of often in a position of having to sort of defend our value Um, will often also preference donations from people who have a lot of wealth and power and privilege who also tend to be cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied white men. Um, And so the records that are present in the archives are reflective of um, how those institutions operate in society. and, And as a result, they are not reflective of society, but they are reflective of kind of power relations in society
1: in reflection to that too, specifically with DU, my biggest, um, well, not biggest, but like one of my issues with DU is that we don't have a university archivist. We don't have anyone who's dedicated, right? Kate does some of that work. It's kind of scattered across departments, but there is no one to tell the story of DU, right? Like the whole story, not just the white man's story, um, but everyone's story. And that, it also reminds me of Um, Something from an article by Anthony Dunbar, where we have this process of like forgetting and remembering. And a lot of that takes place in the archives. And so, again, DU doesn't have a university archivist, so who does that forgetting and remembering? And there is this narrative that DU perpetuates of you know, we're good, we're trying to do these things, but, like, where is, you know, where are the stories of people who are Indigenous, who are Black, who are, you know, at the margin, so to speak, like, who are underrepresented, Um, and so I really think that Like Lauren's position, at least, is my attempt. Um, and I guess I should have said this earlier. So I started at DU in 2018. So I'm fairly new. It feels new because half of my time has been spent in the pandemic at home. But um from what little time I've been here, I really do just feel like there's been so much missing, so many of the stories missing. And that's what Lauren's position is, I hope like adding to that counter story, that counter narrative of these are the histories of the students of color on campus, which are traditionally like underserved and underrepresented.
2: You know, something that the both of Denise and Kate have said um, that does relate to my position and some of the things that I found out or some of the trends that I've noticed when looking through the archives that we have um, is that not only is it systematically done in a way that prioritizes a specific narrative, but um, when they do show um, people of color, it's done in, again, this very specific way. And so one example of that is as I am helping the, Undergraduate Asian Student Alliance and South Asian Student Association plan a night at the archives, and I'm um, assisting in pulling some images for them to use for the um, like Crimson Connect page, the event page. I've had numerous conversations with the president of the Asian Student Alliance about how a lot of the records are related to the Festival of Nations or international students, and that's the only representation of um, diverse students on campus, and it's often done where they are in... uh, What I want to kind of consider like one frame, um, meaning all of the images are of Japanese women in traditional Japanese clothes, or all of the images of the Indian Student Alliance that did exist at one time at IndyU's history are of students praying and with beads, doing something which to me seems ceremonial, but then is framed in this way of, this is super normal and super casual to see on our campus, Um, And so not only is that wrong, um, like a misrepresentation, but it also just it makes it hard for students of color who go here now to see themselves reflected accurately in the stories that we have of previous groups of students um, from their communities because it's only done in this one frame. And of course, that's done because it reinforces the narrative that um, we want to have of our university. And so I agree that this position, That I'm doing currently is I personally think that it's contributing to a a change in that, if only because it is showing other students of color that we have um, a chance to contribute positively to the narrative that the archives build, as opposed to just going with what is there.
3: And specifically what's produced by our marketing department (laughs) and hopefully is produced by them and that they want they feel reflects them.
0: There's a couple different things that I had highlighted, a couple different quotes, but um, Kate, you had said that records are reflective of power relations in society. And I think that interweaves all of everything that y'all had just said. And so I was talking with um, some other students who have been doing some research projects recently, and that came up multiple times about how it was very difficult to find information pertaining to people of color on campus. Um, It was very difficult to kind of like research and track the legacy. And in many ways, it perpetuated for them, they felt like this sense of erasure on campus, or this sense that they didn't really matter. And so I think that goes back to the quote um, about the archive is really being sites of racial confrontation, and reconciliation, and the work they are doing, Lauren, is just so important. So I want to dive right into it. So in learning more about your work, what does the process look like for you on a daily basis in terms of gathering your information, uh, putting your information out there? What does that look like?
2: Um, yeah, so the position has been um, kind of built up with a lot of the background information and, and information gathering, um, as like an in- initial stage, because I really wanted to enter into this as knowledgeable of the history that we know of as possible and potentially find or identify, um, narratives and storylines and names of people who were, um, which were, were productive on campus as well as successful outside of DU. And so that's something that I started with, which was really like going back through all of the yearbooks that DU has um, and identifying people of color by site and um, then trying to track their name through um, historical newspapers and other um, like personal records just to see if I could find anything else about them and their family lines and so I spent a really great deal amount of like a a lot of time just clicking through and looking at pictures and trying to identify people of color that were often in the yearbooks just identified as students um no names and once I had built and I I mean that's like one of the the best parts is going through and looking, looking at all of the old images and um, kind of like fantasizing about what their lives were like and who they were. And um, but I had to put that aside. Because there is a big part of this that is really about the contemporary stories um, and making sure that there is a through line from some of the organizations in the past to what students are doing right now. You had mentioned like the disconnect, and it's something that I've definitely found to be a hindrance in um, connecting the past to today because so many iterations of the groups and the organizations have um, been done that it often gets left like it just is a loose end and then those pieces don't get picked back up again so trying to make those connections and then um presenting it to students in a way that isn't overwhelming but also allows them to see that either there is a ton of information about their group on campus before them today or um to show them that they have something to be upset about and that there isn't anything about their organization and there is a reason to contribute um Today, so it's it's been like research and outreach, um, and and more recently, this week will actually be our second um, chance to host students in the building, BIPOC students in the library for a night at the archives. Um, we had the Black Student Alliance and the African Students United in the building um, a week ago, and we ended up having thirty students show up for. Um, what I would call a very successful first event, and um, it was really interesting to watch. They just got to kind of ask questions and go through material relating to Black and Brown organizations on campus uh, back in to the 40s, and so um, through that, you know, that involved their own information gathering and their own kind of coming to terms with some of the things that they saw. And so this week we'll be having another group of BIPOC students in to do something similar. Um, And they are actually looking forward to having a little bit more of a critical conversation about some of the tropes that are present in the ways that Asian American students have been documented in the past.
0: I know at the University of Denver, we often discuss how student demands or students' experiences are overlooked or not addressed. And there has been kind of this history of like demands repeating or um, recommendations. I think a lot about like the John Evans report and how the recommendations from 2014 have yet to be implemented. And I know there's kind of like this sense of anger at how slow change can be if change does occur at the university. So, when you reflect on your research about student activism and your documentation, what what comes up for you, and what are the feelings um, that come up for you in doing this research? How
2: does it make you feel? It definitely makes me um, <laughs> mad, sad, you know, um less hopeful. and um I think what is hard about that other than those feelings being hard emotions to process. But what's hard about that is that like, at the same time, I want for people to know that this is, this isn't a new conversation. Um, you know, they've been talking about the pioneer being a problem for quite some time now. And if um, it's interesting that that information is less, obviously it's less, um, uh, distributed to the public because that's not what they want us to talk about um so it's kind of it's it's hard it's hard for me for sure and I think as a uh, student who is a graduate student and a woman of color doing this work I feel sometimes doubly sad because it's um difficult to reconcile the work that I'm doing with the lack of change that I think is going to happen because of what I've seen.
1: It is, I mean, I share all the feelings. I really do struggle with this. I mean, I, so I'm Latina. I'm from Miami. I'm not from Denver originally. So I also have a lot to learn like, and I also did not know about Tank Creek when I, well, actually I did, I had read about it well, but I'm a librarian. I feel like that's part of the part of the job. Like I, when I was interviewing for this job, um I had read about Sand Creek. I saw the John Evans report. And as someone who's coming in like from the outside, it just i I felt hopeful. and I just kind of laughed because you know, reflecting on how I felt when I first got this job or when I was applying to this job versus how I feel now when I'm in it and really just seeing the struggle and especially Lauren's work, you see this over and different iterations of the same struggle. You know, when, when is it going to end? I don't, I don't know the only thing that I can do right now that I hope, and I've told Lauren this too, like we need to take care of ourselves first because this institution does not care about us. It does not value us. And we do this work not for the institution, but for each other and for the people who come after us. At this point, we owe it to them. Like that's that's how I see this. That's what keeps me going.
2: I I feel, I guess I can even like add on in that. I feel very validated through, being lucky enough to have Kate and Denise as support Duke through this, because they both recognize like that. This does take a toll on, on your outlook on everything because it is, um, it can be depressing and it can be disappointing. And so I will say like, I agree. I think that is one of the things that keeps me from just being done with (laughs) du is that i feel bad and sad for the future and like i don't want to not do my due diligence to try to make it better in some way like if i can make one person feel seen i i'm stoked i'm like okay well That takes the month of sad stuff and throws it out because I got 30 students in a room looking at archival material, taking photos of them and talking about it. And they stayed for two hours. And that is, that's like why, why, that's why.
3: And they were stoked. They were so, I mean, they were also saw some stuff that was, I feel like we probably could talk about, but like, Mm -hmm. um, like in, in the mid nineties, Lauren, I feel like this was the one. of the first things that you talked about is bsa had a black student weekend that was like this whole and the students were like why don't we have that right now and i was like exactly exactly why don't we have that right now why don't we have a black cultural center anymore why don't we have a black student weekend Why, why 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 like well some of some of that is like surfacing what previously was there and saying like you have This this organization has shown up in some ways, in ways that it could show up again, and there's evidence of it.
1: And please correct me if I'm wrong, but that was organized by the Black, like that was not an institutional thing. That was literally by, you know, by people of color for people of color. And that's really, that is what I've seen throughout all these materials is that we do this for each other we do this work for each other. And that's the only way that we've survived and we will continue to survive at institutions like DU.
0: That's Amelia, what I was thinking about when all of you were talking about the community-based aspect of that and how important that is, just bringing people into the same space, just to be around each other. And I think especially in the times of when we were all stuck in our houses during COVID, I think we have a newfound uh Feeling or love for just being sharing space with one another. I have a couple different areas I want to go into. So first, I want to learn more about um, just in how you all have done your student student activism documentation. What has the, your research revealed? Well, we kind of went over this a little bit, but. What has it revealed to you about maybe specifically students' needs, maybe community needs? What has it
2: revealed to you about maybe higher education in general? I think that, um, and we've kind of hedged on this for the whole conversation, which is that students need real change they need to it to feel genuine and not like we are um checking a box but i also think that there is a um uh we're missing something in like leading them to become big 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 leaders you know what i mean like we're missing a we're missing a step there's um A lot that is being said about how we provide community for students of color, but then there are still students of color who do not feel a part of the communities that are available, and so that's like a gap that we, I, I, I don't know how the archives can solve that problem and how the, I don't think that we can, but it it definitely feels like there is something missing in higher education, um, that leaves students of color in this like fight or flight mode where they either have to participate in the available communities or they are on their own. And, um, sometimes those communities don't feel so genuine. So, that's something that I've seen. Um, I also would would venture to say that, like, as we're documenting, I have these moments where I'm like, why doesn't everybody know about this? And, like, why doesn't everybody know that we already, we've been doing this? We've been trying these things. We've been asking these questions. We've been, you know, pressuring these people, um, which comes back to the whole frame of like, that's not the priority. That's not the university's priority. The university's priority is um, admissions and uh, and campus development, (laughs) but like that's not the whole, that's, I think there's more than that. So I don't know, I think the archives for me have just shown that there's still so much more that can be done to support students of color on campus
0: yeah
1: i was um at an exhibit which i'm forgetting the name of i think it was mapping native denver where a portion of that exhibit was you could put post-its and one of the post-its was i think um just give like make a Tuition free for indigenous students, like for Native students. And that's, I mean, the thing too is these students are leading the change. Students not only have to like do their coursework and schoolwork, but they also have to advocate for themselves. And that's like so much more effort that is not at all recognized anywhere, like at DU, at least at that I've seen. I'm on the outside, I'm, you know, but and I really think that students of color need to be Paid more or given some kind of credit or something because they're doing the work that
3: this institution has not will not do. Black student weekend is a fantastic example of that like why was admissions not. Like paying them to do that it was all about prospective students.
2: Prospective students of color. And it's like, doesn't that doubly check up if we're just talking about checking boxes doesn't that doubly check a box, because the planning is off of the admissions table. They're not responsible for it and the connections that are built they're not responsible for and it may increase diversity like I, I. it just it feels like then, when we have diversity initiatives, they're a lot less intentional, and they have nothing to do with the students. It's not about the students at all. Um i can I will just add a little bit of background though that the black student the Black student weekend was um, organized by the Black Student Alliance um, invited. Uh, like 100 high school students from surrounding um, schools in Denver to campus for an overnight visit where they were paired with current Black students at DU and were able to attend all of these kind of like community building events um, over one weekend. And some of the archives that we have, some of the documents are related directly to those students. And the way that they talked about the community that they were already seeing at DU is sad.
0: I think so much of what we've talked about just in this second has been about kind of the interconnectedness of systems. And Lauren had said, that I don't know if it's like the archives job, whether it's emissions or anything. So we're kind of seeing how different, it's all interconnected in terms of either improving or discouraging students and how they go about there every day so I kind of want to lean into that a little bit more and I think it also ties right into the quote from if you want the history of a white man you go to the library this idea that often I think many people don't see the library as a place of uh, institutional racism I think it gets kind of understated in that conversation of racial equity but it's a part of it right And so for you all, when you think about like an equitable future, when I was researching y'all, you talk a lot about ethics and equity. And so when you envision like it can be a higher education or just envision systems that don't perpetuate harm, what do your systems look like? How are those being implemented?
1: Oh God, this is so hard because I I really wish I would be better at being more optimistic, I guess, (laughs) about the future, Um, but I actually did. Some of my research involves um, Victor Ray's, like, theory of racialized organizations, and he talks about um, how, so there's, he posits these four um, which is one that like racialized organizations enhance or diminish the agency of racial groups, right? And we see that I think across to you, that's something that we've been talking about. So imagining, imagining a future where we have as people of color, our own agency, I think would contribute to that. Um, The second one is racialized organizations legitimate the unequal distribution of resources. I think we've also seen that. I don't know if Florence talked about that yet, but how um, students of color, like organizations, student of color organizations are given less money to do things like Black student weekend, you know, to do things. And so funding, again, the unequal distribution of funding and resources and resources, too, is not just like money, but it's also people, the lack of faculty and staff of color, the lack of support for all of that. Um, Then the third one is whiteness as a credential, because of course, uh, people who perform whiteness are more likely, at least in my experience, more likely to rise up in the ranks, to get promoted, to make these connections that help you get other jobs and Anyway, why this as a credential? And the fourth one is the decoupling of formal rules from organiza- organizational practice is often racialized. And so, and I I don't want to be too like like scholarly about this, but basically it's just that like it's kind of that thing where like, oh there is a rule for something, but if you know someone, you know, you don't have to follow that rule. And at DU, which is very siloed, I'm very, it, I feel like coming again, coming from an outside to to this organization, it really feels like it's very personal. Like a lot of people have, if you have, if you know someone, you might be able to get something done. Um, And of course, again, that kind of plays into whole having resources and who can connect to who. So I think a future, an equitable future at least would hopefully kind of break some of those, those barriers.
2: I am also not great at being optimistic. So I think, um, and what's hard about that is like, I'm young and I'm supposed to be like the person who comes in and like does the, does the do and keeps it going and like pushes for change but i'm tired so i equitable future (laughs) uh where where please show me where would that be but also i guess like if i'm gonna be like serious and answer the question i mean that was serious but if i'm going to focus and answer the question similar to whoever said it whether it was denise or karis but like the comment of um free school start 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 reparationing Because, and not in the way that, like, is made a joke, like, give me free things because I'm Black, but, like, (laughs) more like, um, let's eliminate some of the um, systems that have made it harder for people to, like Denise said, make these connections, meet the people. Every job I've ever gotten is because I know someone. So how can we eliminate more of the like roadblocks to um, students and people of color to be able to make these changes without um exhausting themselves and i brought this up to kate and denise last week and i think it might be worth mentioning only because it is about a book um and we're librarians so (laughs) the book is um the other black girl and um the reason that i am stuck on this book right now is because I won't ruin it for anyone who's going to read it, but there is a, a matrix situation where you get the pink hair grease or the blue hair grease. And one of those hair greases make it easier to, um, it eliminates the work as hard, work twice as hard as a black woman factor. So you get twice as much done as a black woman without completely draining yourself and and um i'm that that sounds equitable <laughs> so <laughs> i know that's unreal but the the book it just it just puts a lot of things into perspective because You know, hearing that you have to work twice as hard, that would be that would make things equitable that if that didn't exist, if I could just work a regular amount and then have it be um, as powerful as if I worked twice as hard as a woman of color, that would be equitable to me. So whether that's more scholarships, more opportunities for mentorship, more opportunities for fellowships that don't feel like um, you have to work twice as hard to get it. Maybe that. So, I think,
3: especially and specifically, as you know, a white cis woman um, who who has parents who were both in academic libraries and spent I spent a lot of time in academia growing up. I basically was built to um, slot myself right in to academia um and i think only in the really like past five to seven maybe eight years have come to see how a lot of systems that i benefit from are really harmful to other people um some of whom many of whom i love and want the best for and i think if if there was anything that was to to change kind of structurally it would be to reorient organizations and i don't even know if this is possible kind of organizations and institutions around care i feel like that that kind of specific direction and orientation toward love and care and wanting wanting people to be well <laughs> i think if 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 that could happen that would be amazing and that would be an amazing start <laughs> to add one more thing i think to just echo what denise said about organizations are not gonna love us like i love people i don't love organizations and i don't expect organizations to love me and that's mostly what i meant by an orientation toward love i don't know that organizations are ever like structurally capable of that kind of care people are people in organizations are but but at a higher kind of structural level, I, I don't think
1: so. He reminded me of something too. Like we need our white folks at you to take on this work, basically. Like in order for us to have less work. Cause the thing about agency, right, is that we like I think I mentioned this earlier, like Students of color on campus, they have to do double the work, their regular course, you know, the course, the struggle of college period, but also the struggle of being a person and having to advocate for your rights, your needs, um, and stuff like that. And I really think that DU just really needs to step it up. I mean, will they, will, won't they? I don't, I don't know, but hopefully they will, and they'll step it up and do the work. One thing that I think we haven't touched on is that this work, right, putting our, putting student documents into the archive is risky. Um, And that is something that Lauren Kate and I have been trying to tackle um, about privacy, making sure that students know their rights when they put something, when they give us whatever they give us in terms of documentation. Um, So it's just something to be mindful of. And I know, I think Neda is also doing some work. Neda Kikia? Yeah,
3: Yeah, she oversees DU Dialogues. And I do, I wanna echo like as an example of the kind of thing that is uh, risky. so for um, the Native Student Alliance in I'm gonna get the year wrong. I feel like it was 2015. It might have been 2016. Um, was part of a No Dakota Access Pipeline Day of Action, and as part of that, um, uh, shut down the cross streets uh, at the intersection of Evans and University, and and there was a you know footage of it that they shared and posted on Facebook, and you know. In terms of sort of both risks to students in terms of like student conduct issues and also risks to students in terms of, um, you know, having charges filed against them that would be actionable in, you know, court. Um, Thinking about like, are the people who are both producing and documented in those materials consenting to have those placed in an archives because we are not immune to subpoenas like that's risk in a in that kind of that's that's an extreme example or it's not an extreme example but it's it's a more uncommon example um but that's you know the sort of thing that we want students to be mindful of when they're thinking about what they may want to donate most of what student act you know student groups are producing is not you know them filming themselves protesting um, but it does happen And that's, you know, something to consider. Where can students
2: donate? Well, there's a couple of places that I know of. (laughs) The first being um, if students of color in organizations on campus have an interest in donating material, they can utilize Crimson Connect to upload um, meeting minutes, flyers, photos from events, um, lists of member names and information like that through Crimson Crimson Connect to their own um, account, and then get in touch with, I guess, me (laughs) about um, transferring that stuff to the library. the other, I guess the other way would just be to con to go through the special collections and archives donation page on the, on the website. I think
3: mostly I just would want students to know that we are still figuring out digital records acquisitions processes, just in general, not just mm-hmm. student records. Um, so there isn't like a, I know Lauren's just like laughing because like, it's true, Um we, we do not have a like robust existing digital records infrastructure. That's what one of the residency librarians is going to be working on. Um, but that is something that sort of goes back to de- what Denise was talking about, where like we don't have a university archivist. We also don't, um, or a dedicated one, a full-time one. Um, we haven't had someone who's been able to really focus in a dedicated way on um, a robust digital records infrastructure that can accommodate and like work with kind of outreach to student groups. Um, because students are often, I think, the most challenging to try and work with and document because while they're here, they're, you know, they're not thinking about like their legacy and their impact on you They're just trying to survive. And, you know, having somebody like, that was part of the reason that this position was so important was that we, unless you make Lauren has done so much outreach and so much, you know, like work to connect with, um, existing student groups. Um, it's incredibly time consuming and, um, and it like, it has to be done constantly because students will graduate and leave. Um, and often most of the things that we have in the archives are from, you know, decades after, um, after someone has graduated, because at that point they're thinking about like, their legacy and their impact, because they're not just like trying to survive while they're here. Um, so currently, <laughs> it is Lauren and Crimson Connect. And I think kind of longer term, we're really hoping to build something that's a little bit more streamlined. And And I think also to go, to come back to kind of why Crimson Connect, um, a lot of the kind of hook that we're trying to use with the student groups is they i think are really craving consistency and continuity between like tr- like uh, as you know you know officers in their groups graduate um they don't always have all of the documentation that they need just to like run themselves um so some of this is i think a- a- at a beginning stage is like just continuity for them um and then ultimately that continuity hopefully leads to, you know donations to the archives but we we're also finding ourselves kind of in a position of like trying to help them with that too because if that's not there then the archive piece is never going to be there.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. To stay up to date on Rage episode release information and opportunities, be sure to follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast. All one word. To support The Rage Podcast, please be sure to subscribe or follow like, and share on the platform that you are listening to us on. The Rage podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about the work that we do, please visit our website, irise.du.edu. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we will catch you next time.